The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Probably have noticed some of the Buddhist art here at Cloud Mountain. We have some nice statues and other pieces of Buddhist art, not just here but also around the other places in the on the retreat property. And uh, generally, you know, the artists are conveying this quality of serenity. It's often the main artistic theme. And it always seems interesting if somehow we could uh, contrast that with some candid photos of ourselves when no one's looking. (laughs) You know, can't find our other sock or when we're eating food and nobody's looking or we have these places in our lives where we tend not to be so serene, not so mindful. And it would be a nice contrast, wouldn't it? I mean, this ancient tradition where they've, both in terms of the teachings and artistically with the artwork, have made a point that holding out this path, this image, this possibility of being peaceful with conditions, peaceful in the world. So I'm really appreciative of of that, even though, you know, it's easy to get idealistic about that, it's easy to misunderstand that. One of the common ways to misunderstand that idea of being peaceful is, well, if only you know, and then we list a few things. Well, then I could be peaceful with conditions. You know, if only politics were different, or my relationships were different, or I had enough money and I didn't have to work, and my body was younger or different, my teachers were better, you know, we can list a few more things. I was eating lunch today. They had the, I think, most recent copy of Tricycle magazine, this Buddhist uh, magazine, and there was an article that uh, on the cover I saw something about uh, how come there aren't, how come we don't know anybody who's awakened or something like that. And I checked it out, it was written by Andy Olensky, who I know and um, is kind of connected, quite connected to this tradition. He uh, was the executive director at IMS way back when and then went on to be the senior scholar and executive director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which is on the same campus of IMS. And he wrote this article and just sort of, you know, asking the question, you know, are there any awakened beings and how come? And and one thought was, well, of course there were a lot of awakened people back in the day because they had an awakened teacher. And if we had a, an awakened teacher, you know, a fully awake teacher, well then maybe we'd be awake too, something like that. But the point is we don't really know. But still in our deepest heart, right, most of us, at least some of the time, are really inspired by that, by the image, by the intuition of being peaceful. And don't we have some intuition that being peaceful is the way. 
I mean, we could ask the opposite, like being agitated, being contentious with conditions, struggling. Is that the way? What does that lead? What do we get when we're struggling, agitated, and what, what does it lead to? Well, we get better at being agitated, right? It cuts a groove. It's like that line now in neuroscience, um, neurons that fire together, wire together, right? And you, some of you probably heard that. So if we practice relating to the conditions of the moment, the conditions of our life, by struggling with them, by grasping, by reacting, resisting, and all these different expressions of attachment, then that becomes the groove in the mind. So I mentioned the other day, uh, just a simple way of understanding practice as the marriage between intimacy and non-grasping. Intimacy and non-attachment, non-grasping, non-clinging, and that we need both. There's, it doesn't really make sense to talk about the peace of the heart not grasping if we're not intimate. It's like we have to connect with the moment, we have to actually show up. That's when non-grasping becomes interesting. Otherwise, it's theoretical, like I was saying, like when conditions are perfect, when I'm in heaven, then I won't grasp. But until then, <laughs> you know, I'll grasp. So tonight I'd like to talk about um, this, uh, some of the teachings that come out of what more recently people call early Buddhism, People like Gil Franzdahl and other teacher scholars trying to, you know, in, in an imperfect way, of course, get a sense of this teacher, the Buddha, this awakened one, somebody who deeply understood, maybe fully, completely understood the mind and was able to articulate that understanding. So it's still reverberating, but of course, for those many years, it was passed down through institutions and culture. So I'm not saying that, you know, we can't trust the teachings. I'm just saying that it's nice in our own heart and mind to renew like what the Buddha was pointing to. And also, I'm very appreciative of these scholars who have their own academic tools to get a sense of what was the Buddha teaching before the teachings became institutionalized in a tradition? What was the Buddha teaching the lay people, the other nuns and monks in those early years? And there's one particular collection that Gil Franzdahl, this West Coast teacher, wonderful teacher, translated recently in a book called The Buddha Before Buddhism. Maybe some of you had a, had a chance to look at it. And it's a, a relatively short collection um, translated as the Book of Eights. And these early teachings are in verse. And the academics are pretty sure that it's an early set of teachings because 
they're mentioned in a number of places in the early suttas. So, in the talks and discussions at the time of the Buddha, there would be situations where the Buddha or somebody would say, please recite the Book of Eights, right? And then they would. So there's a real sense that these teachings were around early on. And uh, Gil has coined this term, um, natural Buddhism. He was invited to a conference on secular Buddhism at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies that I mentioned earlier. And uh, in his talk and paper for that conference, he said he didn't like the term secular Buddhism. He thought it was sort of contradictory. But he thought natural Buddhism made sense to him in the sense of uh, a set of teachings that we can, that a human being can check out for themselves and confirm in their own mind, in their own heart. And keeping a really open mind about everything else that's in the tradition, not rejecting things like rebirth or other ideas that were there in the culture even before the time of the Buddha, but certainly come up quite a bit in the teachings and the discourses. But not so much in these early teachings, at least in this particular set of teachings. And so I just want to review the kind of main points from this. And Gil names the main points in, I guess, three ways. It would be an easy way to remember. One point that is found through this collection and other early teachings is that somebody who's practiced well, they're referred to as a sage, as a wise person, and they're defined as somebody who's peaceful with conditions. So they're described in terms of their actual behavior. They're peaceful with the conditions that are showing up in their life. And then, of course, interestingly, makes a lot of sense in terms of integrity, the way they became a sage who's peaceful with conditions is they practice being peaceful with conditions. <laughs> I like that. There's a lot of integrity, a lot of trustworthiness about a path where the means, you know, if we wanted to use a more highfalutin term like becoming awakened, enlightened, the means is in alignment with the ends. We want to be peaceful. Let's practice being peaceful with the conditions. Right? This is where intimacy comes in. Well, we have a moment right now. And luckily the Buddha didn't leave it there. Right? He kind of operationalized how do you, like if we were inspired by this possibility of being a sage, also known as being peaceful with conditions, no matter what they are, then could you give me a little bit more instruction, Venerable Sir, right? instead of just being peaceful? And so the, the Buddha did. He made two other strong points that get repeated over and over again in this collection of teachings. So if you want to be peaceful with conditions, Specifically, look at how the mind is relating to view. Its views, its beliefs, its ideas, its conceptions. How is the mind relating? And 
What is it to have a peaceful relationship with views? What is it to have a not so peaceful relationship with views? And so that's one whole category, paying attention to views. And the other is paying attention to sense craving, craving sense experience in terms of relating peacefully with conditions. So some of the conditions that show up in any moment are the views that we have about the moment or about anything. And some of what shows up in any moment of our experience is the sense, you know, the specific sense experiences that are there in that moment. And the question is, how is the mind relating? The Buddha, you know, this is really sort of one way of thinking about the Buddhist teachings on wisdom. And uh, it's interesting, the, the first kind of grounding, the mind grounding with wisdom, is just understanding that things are lawful. I mean, we're, most of us are there most of the time. Sometimes when we're really upset, we think otherwise, we think somebody's out to get us. But when we come back into a more balanced place, we realize things are just happening because of causes and conditions. We may not, and we often don't, understand the you know, complexity of causes and conditions. But most of people, most people, whether they consider themselves a student of the Buddhist teachings or not, most people um, who haven't been overwhelmed by life and have been able to be somewhat attentive have learned this lesson, have started to learn this lesson. This is a lawful, conditional world that I'm in. And then if we get interested in that deepening of wisdom, oh yeah, this is a lawful world, then it's quite natural for the mind to wonder if it's lawful, right, conditional, then what? in what way can I participate in this lawful unfolding to shape how things unfold? I mean, that's the logical thing. And there we have a lot of sort of, you know, early bird gets the worm, right? It's sort of like a distillation, like, you know, if you're lazy, you're not going to get the worm. But if you get up early and you lean in, you'll get results, right? So this, this is a very simplistic expression of that basic rule that there are skillful ways for me to be relating, showing up, engaging my life, and there are not so skillful ways for me to be relating and showing up to my life. So this first understanding, you know, we call karma, that intention, intentional action matters. And then once we realize that, then it's just a matter of, well, am I going to live in accordance to what I've begun to understand, like what actually is skillful, what is actually unskillful, what actually plants seeds of peace, what ways of being, ways of relating, attitudes of mind, plant seeds of stress. 
You know, the, the entirety of the Buddhist teachings, it's quite vast and amazingly subtle. I mean, it's both sort of makes a lot of sense, it's rational, but it's also very subtle. But it's really just this. Everything's lawful. Part of the lawful condition on unfolding is how I'm showing up in the moment, how I'm relating. There are ways to relate that are skillful, ways to relate that are unskillful. If I really become a devoted student of this, because I care about my life and I care about the suffering I might set emotion for others, and I really pay attention, make it a careful art and science of paying attention so I get better and better at relating in ways that are skillful, planting seeds of happiness and peace, and really good at refraining from planting seeds of stress for myself and others, right? Will that lead to this sort of essential teaching in the Buddha's discourses, which is liberation through non-clinging, right? He talks about the essence of the path as realizing the heart that doesn't cling, realizing the mind that is free from clinging, free from grasping, free from attachment. And what we're doing here is we're gaining this faith that Kamala talked about a few nights ago. It's not faith in how we often use that word here at this time and place. Because although initially we may be inspired by a wise person and how another person is living and navigating their life with such ease and skillfulness, serenity, but real confidence begins to uh, support our life and lead onward to persistence, effort, you know, the five faculties that Kamala mentioned yesterday, when we see it, we see the reality of it in our own mind, in our own heart. The difference between planting skillful seeds and unskillful seeds. And this is the perfect place to experiment on retreat. It's like when I start obsessing, you know, about having a cabin, which I do sometimes, mm -hmm. I realize I, I did this, I noticed this earlier today. I was thinking about something being, you know, perfect place, in the per, you know, perfect house in a perfect place, not too big, not too small, no bugs, <laughs> you know, with a view, but shaded by big trees. <laughs> it's cheap. <laughs> And somebody else will take care of it. <laughs> and I don't have to share it with anybody. I have to clean up their messes. You know, all these sort of unrealistic things. And I noticed after I had been thinking about that, I noticed like what seeds have been planted. Because I noticed my heart, body and mind felt a little discombobulated afterward. Just a little like spun out, like I needed a nap. You know, I needed to sort of reboot and a little uh, sort of disappointment like, well, that wasn't helpful, you know, what are you doing? 
What did that, what did that deliver? Because the mind knows better, like it knows a little bit about planting wholesome seeds and planting unwholesome seeds. And then it's just a matter of having, developing the integrity. Like once we have, not perfect sense, but some sense of how to plant wholesome seeds and how to refrain from planting unwholesome seeds, then maybe, maybe Kamala will talk about this. I don't think she's decided, but there's this teaching on Hiri Otapa, the wholesome concern. Like, oh, honey, <laughs> you know, what, what kind of heart do I want to set in motion? Peaceful or agitated? We're not helpless here. So the, the being a devoted student, a, a kind of really learning the lessons about planting wholesome, what's wholesome and unwholesome, and even if we make mistakes, we'll learn, you know, because we're tracking, we're, we're using this tool, this muscle of mindfulness, mindful awareness. So whatever we do with, with intention, we'll notice what gets set in motion, what's the flavor, what's the aftertaste or the leftover, the reverberation of having been thinking in that way or having been fixed on that view or relating in that way. What did that set in motion? Was it releasing of stress or was it setting emotion stress? And am I willing to be honest with myself and then live in accordance? And it's said, I'm not there yet, but it's said that people who live in accordance with their own heart shows them from paying attention, they become peaceful with conditions. They're the sage that is peaceful with conditions because they practiced planting seeds, right? They of peace with what is, what's happening, what's being known. Oh, it's like this now. Just like we do when we notice anger, right? We know, at least intellectually, the way forward isn't to get angry at being angry. The way forward is, right, that's why we uh, work on the attitude of loving kindness so that we have this other possibility of having kindness and forgiveness about the anger that we're noticing. Oh yeah, sometimes the mind is angry and it feels like this. This is how it is right now. It's anger being known. And then we go from being identified with the anger, planting seeds of stress, to planting seeds of peace by relating to the anger in a peaceful way, in a wise way, with compassion, with understanding. And it's not just planting seeds of peace, it's a peaceful way to relate to anger. So the peace is there, and it's also set, you know, it's also cutting the groove for more peace down the road. In this article that Gil Fransdahl wrote for this conference on secular Buddhism, he wrote, his article was titled, Natural Buddhism. Clinging is explained as the primary reason a person is not peaceful. The release of clinging is the primary means to peace. 
The most common description of what is attained are peace, calmness, tranquility, and equanimity. In sharp contrast, clinging, craving, entrenchment, and quarreling (coughs) are most frequently mentioned activities that are abandoned. So in these early teachings, you don't find mention things of transcendent reality or even extraordinary states of consciousness, psychic powers, things that you do find generally in the tradition. That doesn't mean that they don't exist. It just means, apparently, in these early teachings, the Buddha didn't stress these points. And uh, another thing from the book, The Buddha Before Buddhism, Gil writes in his introduction, the most common attribute associated with the sage is peace. Such a person advocates peace, sees and knows peace, is as at peace, and is peaceful. The sage is also tranquil, still and unmoving, unshakable and equanimous. Though peace is clearly an attribute of sages, they do not depend on peace or intentionally take it up. That's sort of an in- interesting point. Would somebody who is peaceful with conditions need to take up peace? He writes, This is because sages do not depend on or take up anything. Instead, they let go. In another place in these verses, the Buddha says, You know, the sages are peaceful among those not at peace. Well, we need that in this world. You know, there's a lot of agitation. And sometimes we're the one who's agitated and we need to relate, relate to our agitation in a peaceful way. And sometimes our dear one, our friend, family member, is really agitated, upset. And we, we need... And it's not a stance. Like we're not trying to teach them something. You know, you should be peaceful. I've fallen into that trap. <laughs> A long, long time ago, of course. (laughs) Yeah, that's the neat thing about being peaceful with conditions is the mind becomes very creative and nimble in terms of how it is actually going to show up in moments because it's not a fixed stance, which is why, and we'll get there, the Buddha talks a lot about looking at fixed views even fixed views around the Dharma, or the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha. It's easy in these circles to feel justified. There's an a interesting story from the Thai forest tradition, Achan Cha's lineage, where he had ordained somebody back in the late 70s, and that person had become quite well known in the local forested communities in northeast Thailand, And at some point, the person decided to disrobe and return back to the States. And a year later, returned to that part of Thailand as a recently reborn evangelical missionary and converting some of the local people that um, were going to Achan Chao's monastery to to, um, Christianity. And some of the supporters of the monastery went to Achan Chao and said, how can this be? And he had this great reply. He said, well, maybe they're right. <laughs> because he you know, was a wise person and he saw that they were clinging to a view. 
And clinging to any view, even, you know, a skillful view, skillful ideas, the clinging isn't helpful. And one of the more famous and potent images from the tradition is the Buddha's use of a raft. And in these collection of verses, the Buddha uses the image of the flood many times. This is a very common image for our minds, the flood, right? And remember, most of the time the Buddha was teaching uh, in the flood plain of the Ganges River, right? So this was the most um, terrible natural disaster that would happen to folks. So everybody knew about floods, you know, and back in the day, without the warning systems, they'd be asleep at night and thunderstorm up the river or, you know, who knows what. And all of a sudden, you know, the village gets swept away. So this was a, a very real thing. So the Buddha used something that was very alive in people's minds, being swept away and having to cross the flood. I don't know if you've ever done backpacking where you have to ford major rivers. It's not easy to get across uh, a river, you know, just the, with the current and the slipperiness and being top-heavy with a backpack. And so this was sort of a common occurrence for people with all the different rivers flowing into the major river. So he used this image of being swept away by a flood and the teachings, these practices of not clinging to views and not clinging to sense experience, right, as a way of practicing being peaceful in a world where we need views. So not clinging to views doesn't mean we don't have views. Just like not clinging to sense experience doesn't mean I'll refuse ice cream. You know, as long as nobody's being harmed or not harmed too much, <laughs> we should have a conversation with the cows probably. But anyway, you know, if somebody handed me, uh, my new favorite is one that's made with uh, cashew milk. <laughs> so no cows involved. Um, as long as nobody's being harmed, I can receive that sense experience, I can be peaceful with that sense experience, and I can be done with the bowl of cashew milk ice cream without any reverberation, right? I'm not saying I can do that all the time, but it's in the realm of possibility of having sense experience without craving, without clinging, to, to sense experience, being in the world of sensuality without being burdened, without being pushed around, weighted down by the mind's likes and dislikes, basically. So being peaceful with this world of views, we need opinions, we need views, we need perspectives, we need teachings, we need to make choices to go to this retreat versus that retreat. But we don't have to cling to the idea that this is the best retreat. Or the opposite, I made a mistake. This is not the best retreat. We don't need to know actually. We just need to know we're here and we need to know given that we're here, what's the skillful way to relate 
to being here. There's a great line from Joseph Goldstein. You know, the best way to do retreats is 100%, right? Because it's not that we chose the right retreat, but if we're on the retreat, or even in terms of relationships, you know, if we're in relationship with another human being, having dinner, or tied the knot, gotten married, or whatever it might be, right? as long as we're in relationship, What's the appropriate way to do that? And this is that goes back to that first statement about the marriage of intimacy and non-grasping. So the peace that comes from non-grasping doesn't arise from holding back. Or this is a mistaken idea. This is the, you know, at least as the tradition says it, the first talk, the first Dharma talk the Buddha gave, the first part of the first Dharma talk the Buddha gave, he clarifies this point. It's not about indulging in sense experience, and it's not about rejecting sense experience. That's this, you probably have all heard about the middle way. Right? This is the point the Buddha was making. And the people he was, he was talking to, they already knew, they were pretty... Uh, far along in their spiritual practices, they already knew that you don't get happy spending your whole life pursuing nice sense experiences. Because you can't hold on, they don't last, the mind, the heart just wants more. As nice as experiences of gratification can be, when we get that hug, or we get the dish of ice cream, or we get the good sleep, or whatever it is, as nice as and real as experiences of gratification are, I've never been fully contented after really nice sense experiences. I mean, it's for a while craving goes away, sometimes just for a few moments, but it comes back online pretty quick. So gratification doesn't remove craving, but that's the promise. So it's not about pursuing sense experience as an end in itself, but it's also, the Buddha said, not about rejecting or trying to deny sense experience, the sort of path of asceticism. He gave that up. He checked it out. He didn't find that it led to real freedom. It led to getting skinny and sick, right? Because he was doing a lot of fasting, right? And then the mind gets affected when the body isn't healthy. And so in terms of finding one's way, the Buddha rejected that. He didn't say you should take, you know, everything that comes our way, but we should take enough so that the body and mind is in balance. Another thing that sages know and see are the ways people struggle. Gil writes, they know what is not harmonious and what is dangerous. They know the problems that come from pride and holding to opinions, holding on to opinions. They see how people selfishly thrash about, get elated and deflated in their disputes, speak with arrogance and cling to teachings. By having insight into these afflictive states, a wise person knows not to get involved with them and to let go of them. 
And another point that is made in these verses is how there's no examples, and this is generally true even in later traditions, but, you know, that we have to do this work ourselves. I think Kamala mentioned one of the well-known teachings from Menindaji, one of Kamala's teachers, and an important teacher in this lineage coming to the West from Theravada Buddhism, that, you know, the Buddha, he did his work, now it's time for us to do our work. We can be inspired by our teachers and our Dharma friends, and we're really supported being here together on retreat. But this mind has to look at this experience, right? This mind has to open, this mind has to understand, this mind has to learn what's skillful and what's unskillful and live in, a, live a, in accordance with what we see in our own experience, in our own heart and mind. Nobody can really do that for us. So this could be um, just a very natural study for us in the days... We're right in the middle of the retreat now, so in the days we have left in the, this retreat, to really look at opinions and views, beliefs that will naturally come up, even really mundane choices, and just be curious about how the mind is holding or relating to the choice or the view or the perspective, the idea that is currently in the mind. And is it a cause for stress, or does it have the flavor of peace, light touch? That would be really interesting. And then the same thing with sense experience, stepping out after the Dharma talk, and it's raining out. So that's a sense experience, the sound, even the drops, you know, all the different components of that experience. How is the mind relating to that sense experience? Or crawling into bed later tonight? Or thinking about and then showing up for the nine o'clock set? You know, and some of you may really love the chanting, and so as the chanting begins, how's the mind relating to that sense experience of the group chanting together? And if you're one of those folks that doesn't like the chanting, then how is the mind relating to that sense experience? Like clinging to the idea of it ending or clinging to the idea of it lasting, wanting it to last. And just to start um, taking responsibility for studying the ways the mind clings and what that sets in motion. Don't take it on faith that clinging is the cause for suffering, stress, really check it out. And the same with moments of non-clinging, really check that out. Like, is non-clinging, the flavor of non-clinging, is that what the heart truly seeks? The peace of non-clinging. Is this the most refined, most beautiful expression of happiness? 
the peace of non-clinging. Because that's what the Buddha suggests. You know, he kind of laid it out, laid these teachings out, and then he says, Ehi pasiko, come and see. Please. It will be good for your own good and the good of others for you to check this out and see if this is beneficial for you. Please check this out. You have to check it out for yourself. Here's a couple. This is not from this early collection, but from some other teachings of the Buddha. In one who keeps focusing on the drawbacks of clingable phenomena, right? and basically it's possible to cling to almost any phenomena, and the Buddha taught we should become an expert both, uh, we should become an expert on the actual experience of gratification with sense experience, getting what we like, right? what is that experience. It's nice, right? To get really clear of the experience of gratification, to get really clearly aware of the drawbacks of getting what we want, like, I want more, I want it to last, I want it to be even better, I want to have more than others. That's really interesting when we see that. They've done lots of studies now, you know, where they offer people money, you know, according to some algorithm, And they find that people, given the option of having more money or having less money, but significantly more than other people, they'll choose having less money, but relatively more than other people, than they would having more money, but other people have about the same they have. Right? It says something about gratification. Like that experience of gratification is relative. I feel, you know, you give me ice cream, I feel pretty good. But if everybody has ice cream and hot fudge sauce, I don't feel good about my ice cream. Because it's relative in that way. So we should study gratification. We should study the very real drawbacks of clinging to sense experience. And we should study the escape. And... Just on an intellectual level, we know what the escape is, right? Because we could get the multiple choice question right, right? Non-attachment is the escape the Buddha points to. The path of non-attachment, not clinging to anything. So this is how we study these um, uh, experiences of sensuality. From the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging. From the cessation of clinging comes the cessation of becoming. From the cessation of becoming comes the cessation of birth. From the cessation of birth, then aging, illness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair all cease. Such is the cessation of this entire mass of suffering and stress. So the Buddha is basically painting a picture that we can observe in our own heart. He says, when we are aware of the drawback of sense experience, you know, we might be clinging 
to going to sleep. Oh, I can't wait, I'm in bed. And then we remember the drawbacks, you know. Really wanting to be in bed makes it seem like the talk's going on forever, right? It's like directly we start to suffer. The more we crave being in bed, the more this becomes intolerable. And not only this, walking practice. And then another sit, you know. It's like, no way. But all of that suffering is because of the grasping the idea of being in bed, clinging to it. So when we focus on the drawback, like how much stress there is being here and now, doing what I'm doing, then the clinging is dropped, right? He says, or the craving, rather, is dropped. And when we don't crave, we don't do something. Like one of the things we do when we're on a talk, craving being in bed, is we start to get agitated. Right? And that makes it worse. Or we start to think about it. And that makes it worse. Or we, we start to strategize. Like, I'll pretend I have to go to the bathroom. But I'll really just go to bed. <laughs> Or you could have a coughing fit. <laughs> yeah, and then have to leave the room. <laughs> but all of that, it really, when we pay attention to it, it makes this moment really unpleasant. Now, when we're not paying attention, that just reinforces the craving. So the Buddha has this way of describing it. It's just about the degree of psychic involvement in the whole craving project. There's craving, right? And then when we, when the craving, the wanting, leads to some action where we're grasping or clinging, then the karma's a little bit, the seeds we're planted are a little bit more potent. And then once we've taken some action based on the craving, we're clinging, then we've set in motion the new me. I'm the one who craves and acted on the craving, so I've become somebody. So we say that person takes birth. Those seeds have an impact. Karma has been planted, right? Intentional action has been taken. And, you know, when the Buddha says in this very traditional um, the steps of dependent origination from craving to clinging to becoming, birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, suffering. Right? This is just metaphorically talking about planting seeds of craving, clinging to sense experience. Just in how I described it with obsessing a little bit about the cabin and noticing and how you know and you know it's so ironic cuz i was actually sitting in a really nice little cabin <laughs> <laughs> under really beautiful trees hearing the pitter patter rain you know it's doesn't get much nicer and that's the great irony of sense craving is we miss our life 
because we're craving. You know, we're strategizing and we're burning because of all of that. It really burns our heart. I think uh, Saida Upandita said once, craving cracks the brain or cracks the mind or something like that. Get the exact word he used. So we have these two places the Buddha suggests that we tune into, right? We're interesting in exploring the Buddha's pointing out instruction that there is this happiness, this peace, this personal peace, meaning it's something we realize right here in the heart and mind, the peace of non-clinging. And in particular, the Buddha says, Take a look at how the mind's relating to sense experience and how it's relating to views, ideas. And in these verses, it, they teach to find peace, a follower should shake off every view without embracing or rejecting anything. This includes views about views. One of the things, like that story that I mentioned, the Buddha in these verses talks about how a sage doesn't argue, doesn't have a problem with other views. How can you argue with someone who doesn't have a fixed view? And how can we operate in the world with opinions and views and perspectives without clinging to it? It's really like we'll have lots of ideas about how our retreat is going, like, is this one of your good retreats? Or is this one of your bad retreats? You know, or whatever. But it's okay for those thoughts to show up in the mind because they're going to show up in the mind. The interesting thing, does it help to cling, to make that idea, that view, more than what it is? What is it? It's just a thought being known. Even when we have that, for some of us, that ancient habit of thinking, I'm no good, when some version of that thought arises, we don't have to cling to it. We don't have to not have it there even. We just have to understand what that thought is. It's a point of view. It's a thought that arises due to causes and conditions and if not attached to, if the mind doesn't spin with it, then it passes away. And sometimes, because things, the groove has already been cut, those opinions, those points of view, come with a strong emotional charge, too. And that can make it seem like it's really my view, <laughs> you know, like it's really personal. But that charge, the tension that arises with a point of view, a perspective, an idea, that's just a charge being felt, that's just emotion being felt. So we're neither for or against it, we're just understanding these things as they are. One of the nice things, as Kamala opened up the schedule this morning, inviting people just at different times to follow your nose, your dharma 
knows in terms of how you're going to use your time, what would be skillful, keeping the mind in balance and cultivating this continuity of mindful awareness, supporting the continuity of mindful awareness. Right? It can, we can have this attitude, well, who knows? We'll see. We'll see what I do. You know, it seems like I'm walking to the dining hall to get a cup of tea, but we'll see. I could be, I could end up doing walking practice on the deck or walking down the driveway and back or going to my favorite spot in the woods and sitting on a bench. We'll see. Because it doesn't really matter what we do. What matters is this study of how is the mind relating? Is the mind connecting with clarity? clear enough to notice if there's clinging or not clinging. And if there's clinging, if there's grasping, if there's attachment, is it in fact setting emotion stress, as the Buddha suggests? And if there doesn't appear to be much or any clinging, grasping, struggling, is there peace and is the mind moving in the direction of peace? Right? We can do that walking on the deck or sipping tea or walking down the driveway or sitting on a bench in the woods. Being curious about the causes for suffering and the causes for release. I'll just end with this really beautiful little teaching from Ajahn Chah. Most of you probably know who Ajahn Chah is, but uh, he's this uh, very respected... Buddhist monk from Thailand who died in the early 90s and was pretty uh, instrumental in doing training, training some of the important Western teachers, including people like Ajahn Sumedho and Jack Kornfield and several others, and just has had a very powerful impact on the Dharma, even what is showing up here at Cloud Mountain. And he had this really simple, powerful teaching. He said in one of his uh, talks that was transcribed. In the end, we can only say this, apart from birth, the life and death of suffering, there is nothing. There is just this. But we who are ignorant run and grab it constantly. So he gives this beautiful simile. He says, if we cut a log of wood and throw it into the river, and that log doesn't sink or rot, or run aground on either of the banks of the river, that log will definitely reach the sea. Our practice is comparable to this. If you practice according to the path laid down by the Buddha, following it straightly, you you will transcend two things. What two things? Just those two extremes that the Buddha said were not the path of a true meditator. Indulgence and pleasure and indulgence in pain. Right? So by indulgence, he means clinging, taking it personally, identifying with pain and pleasure. These are the two banks of the river. On one of the banks of the river is hate. The other is love. So here he means love with attachment, kind of the more superficial kind of love. Or... You can say that one bank is happiness and the other is unhappiness. The log is this mind, 
As it flows down the river, it will experience happiness and unhappiness. If the mind doesn't cling to that happiness or unhappiness, it will reach the ocean of nirvana. Right? Nirvana, nibbana, means the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion. It's really the dropping away of clinging. That's what nibbana is. It isn't a place. It's the dropping away of all clinging. <coughs> you should see that there is nothing other than happiness and unhappiness arising and disappearing. If you don't run aground on these things, then you are on, on the path of a true meditator. This is the teaching of the Buddha. Happiness, unhappiness, love and hate are simply established in nature according to the constant law of nature, right? Pleasure and pain. It just comes with the territory of being a human being. The wise person doesn't follow or encourage them, doesn't cling to them. This is the mind which lets go of indulgence in pleasure and indulgence in pain. It is the right practice. Just as that log of wood will eventually flow to the sea, so will the mind which doesn't attach to these two extremes inevitably attain peace. So let's just take a few moments, let go of the words. for listening. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.